Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, partly because we're going to have a chance to talk with someone that whose work I've followed for 20 or more years, just a groundbreaking individual, scholar, clinician, teacher, and one of the people, frankly, most responsible for helping other people to find healing and growth and repair related to traumatic experiences. This is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk is a professor of psychiatry at the Boston University School of Medicine and president of the Trauma Research Foundation in Brookline, Massachusetts. He's also the best-selling author, as you may know if you're listening to this, of The Body Keeps the Score, which has spent, I think, over three years on the New York Times bestseller list and is one of the most influential modern books in the field. So, Bessel, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. It's a real pleasure to be doing this with you. And one of the things that's always stood out to me about your work and that stood out to me as I was reading the book is the role that imagination and aspirational thinking and even like storytelling can play in the healing process for people who have experienced something traumatic. And I would really love your take on this. And for me, what I find is that like when I'm going through a really challenging experience, it can help me to imagine a future where I'll no longer be going through that experience. You know, I know that the discomfort will change. But for people who have experienced a lot of trauma, they often find themselves getting kind of stuck inside yeah. of the moment of that experience. And they, they can't become free with that. And they feel like things are just going to keep on going the way that they are right now forever. And I'm sure you can articulate this much better than I can. So I just love your take on this generally in terms of that role of imagination and creative play. You just said it, like the nature of trauma is that you get stuck. Yeah. Some people have the misperception, oh, it's that event. And once mm. you resolve the event, everything will be fine. No, trauma changes, that event is over. Mm -hmm. The problem is that your brain doesn't know it's over and that you continue to behave as if this event is still occurring then the question becomes not processing that event, but living in a body that feels safe mm -hmm. and having a mind that gets rewired to be primarily engaged in the present and not in the past. Mm. And so it's very challenging because your mind, your brain, your whole system is organized to deal with an alcoholic father or a violent husband. You don't really have the capacity to think about anything else. Mm. To some degree, you could define trauma in many different ways, but also as a failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. And so a very important part of therapeutic inventions need to be to really open people up to new possibilities. And to my mind, that's increasingly an experiential piece. Mm -hmm. Psychotherapy is important. It's important to have somebody who validates your story, who helps you to, to understand what's going on with you, very important part to find language for yourself, but understanding why you're messed up doesn't make you less screwed up. So, oh, now I know why I'm messed up. <laughs> so, it's just quite helpful because once you know why you're screwed up, mm -hmm. you might be able to think, oh, but maybe if I do that, I may feel better. Mm -hmm. So you still, the job of healing is really your own job. And when you try to recover from trauma, you need guides, coaches, but at the end, it's it's up to you. Nobody, I mm -hmm. just came off a podcast and said, so Dr. Valerko, why don't you prefer behavioral control? 
And my answer was like, I can barely control myself. That look. <laughs> <laughs> my own life is tough enough. Limited intervention. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so my job is to help you to find your way of leading your life. Mm. Your life is different from my life. And your talents are different from my talents. And your resources are different. So, so it's all a question of what it is that you will help you to be fully alive right now. Mm. And very important part of that is open up people's imagination. Because if you cannot imagine something, it doesn't exist. In order to change your life, you need to imagine other possibilities. Yeah. yeah. And I think a very important part of being a therapist, a therapeutic convention, is to actually create opportunities for people to explore their creativity. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has most struck me about your particular work is how creative it is and how you, in a kind of parallel process yourself to what you're helping people do, have been willing really more than I think any other major figure in the field to draw on different forms and modalities of various kinds, psychodrama here, psychedelic assisted therapy there, yeah. many, many yeah. things in between. That's been really quite remarkable. Very simple. I grew up in a fundamentalist family. My parents were very <laughs> smart about fundamentalists. And from a little kid on, I go like, hey, yeah, there's not only one explanation. Mm. Just because you're born in this village over there and everybody believes what you believe in, doesn't mean that you're better than people in India who grew up in a different village. There are many ways of doing it. People have always tried to deal with trauma. And in every community, you find interesting healing practices. Mm, right. Healing practice that you may apply in Gola may not be particularly good in New York City. You know, mm. And so you need to really see what do people need within the cultural context that makes sense to them. Right. So to engage imagination as this creative, reparative act, that involves agency. That involves, as you say, taking that initial responsibility for oneself, which is, of course, as you well know, really alarming in the beginning often for people because it was actually that agency sometimes that was punished and, mm. and traumatized when they were young. Right. What have you seen about helping people light the pilot light, as it were? So there's many different ways of doing it. Where we start in our work is in embody self-awareness. Mm. To know who this creature is, to get to know this creature, to get to know what different things mean individually, to actually have a relationship to that creature who you are, and to be very aware of what uptightness feels like and how you can change it and mm. what happens inside of you and what touch feels like, what mm. breathing feels like. And to really, when you look at like for the ACE study, where people find all these different things that go wrong after trauma, yeah. what they have in common is people not being in touch with their bodies mm. and not honoring them. So they take drugs and they starve themselves and they don't sleep enough and they do all kinds of stuff. That all that are a sign of disrespect for your own body. Mm. And so learning how to, to really have a loving relationship with this creature, you, that you oftentimes blame for what has happened to you. Yes. And who you feel very ashamed of yeah. because that creature becomes so angry or so frozen or so scared and that nobody else can do this for you. You know, I can be compassionate with you and nice, but once I'm not around, you need to do it yourself. Huh? And so the big mm -hmm. issue is how do I feel myself? And so we, in terms of treatment, we're very much into helping people to 
feel who they are and at different stages, how do you got to be the way they are, what it's like to change things, to be new breathing and touch, to really change your, help people to get a more loving relationship to themselves. Mm. And of course, yeah. all good treatments have that in common. IFS does that also, somatic experiencing does it. And so they all have this core idea of your relationship to this creature who you are. Mm. So one of the things that you just alluded to there, Bessel, is internalized abuse of various forms that is very common in trauma survivors. You've told a lot of stories in your work about people who come to you and they start saying, well, you know, I had a, a normal childhood or a happy childhood or I had pretty good parents. Then you peel back the layers of the onion a little bit and it turns out that they were physically abused or sexually molested or whatever other incredibly painful experiences that they had to go through. And we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast in the past. So why is it, do you think, that people go through that process of internalized abuse and, and blame themselves for the bad things that have happened to them? Once you have a developmental point of view, yeah. there's nothing surprising about yeah. it. Huh? And I think it's really important to really hang out a lot with kids. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Really see how human beings develop. Yeah. And so a little baby has no idea where it is and who it is. And that little baby gets to understand who it is from the way it's being treated. Mm. The only experience they have. So if they're yeah. being told, oh, I wish I couldn't have an abortion, but the Supreme Court told me I could not have an abortion. So I had you against my wishes, and I'm really sorry you were born. That becomes a part of who you are. I'm an yeah. unwanted person, and I'm no good, and I'm a blot on the existence of the world. And that is going to be a very hard map to change. Mm. And that's not like, oh, how can you be so stupid or self-centered? No, uh, that is how the brain develops. Is The brain is a, is a map of the world that you develop on the basis of your experiences. And so if your experience is that you're unwanted, bad, worthy of being beaten up, that is who you become. And how do you change that? It's not by, it wasn't your fault. At some point, people say, I know it wasn't my fault, but I mm -hmm. still feel like I'm a unwanted blot on the earth. So you need to actually have experiences that are different. It turns out that psychedelics are very good for that. Yeah, I have not sent off that paper yet, but I was the PI on the, on the large recent MDMA study and our data are really stunning in terms of how it is actually the most single most impressive thing I've seen in terms of a capacity to overcome developmental trauma. Mm. So people develop a sense of compassion for the creature who they were, were back then, and they can get a perspective of, oh, that's what that kid went through, and that's why this kid is so angry and upset. And then you can also get a sense, I'll take care of that kid. I'll mm -hmm. give that kid what it didn't get before. So psychedelics tend to be really a major new, new treatment in that regard. But you know, trauma really messes up your brain, it messes up connections, your capacity to attend and to organize. And so neurofeedback can also be extraordinarily helpful to just help the system to calm itself down enough so you actually know who it is, who you are. Mm. You know, just a bundle of emotions, but you really know, get a sense of, oh, now I need to go to sleep. Or now, so you get a sense of interiority of making it safe to be who you are in a way. Right. And people often have fears about that, getting in touch with themselves in that way and, and bringing that kind of nurturance to themselves. Yeah. 
you know, much of trauma stuff is look what you did to me, but look what people did to you. Yeah, that's all true. But most traumatized people carry an internalized shame and self-hatred that is profound. Yeah, as Forrest was pointing out, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that one of the things that I've, I forget if I was reading this and the body keeps the score or if I heard you say it somewhere else, but I just think it's really so poignant that somebody wants to stay in relationship with their family of origin to such an extreme degree that they're willing to tell a story that includes themselves being the bad guy, essentially. Like, this bad thing happened to me, and it happened to me because I was bad, not because my parents were bad or my family was bad or there was this messed up stuff going on out in the world. And we just have such a desperate desire, like you're saying, the vulnerable child who knows nothing other than what it needs to receive in order to survive. Like, that's what you have to do. Look at you guys, your father and son. Yeah. No, you, never, you haven't run away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Thankfully, it didn't go through those experiences. But yeah, no, absolutely. You want to stay in that relationship. You need a pride in which you identify yourself as father and son. Yeah. Because your sense of agency, of pride, of competency yeah. is very much like, my dad and I really get along very well. Totally. And so you are privileged. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Of course, this feeling of belonging Mm-hmm. is such a fundamental human need yeah. that if you get abused by the people who from your tribe, you are faced with a terrible existential dilemma that is, I don't envy anybody, is mm. do I stick with the tribe I belong to that gives me an identity and a feeling of belonging and mm. a name and a gravesite and all sorts of stuff? Yeah. Or do I go off on my own and start a new life? It's a huge challenge. Yeah. And anybody who does it has nothing but my greatest respect. Mm. And most people we see it are a political system right now, and they would rather hook up with dangerous and frightful people rather than saying, no, I'm going to go off by myself. Yeah, I think often that children, I've, I've worked with a lot of children, including some who've been traumatized, and there's this fateful choice in the mind of a young child, I, I think, in terms of, and including a very young child. I did my dissertation on 15-month-olds, and... Basically, the choice is they're crazy or I'm crazy. They're bad or I'm bad. And most children make a fateful choice that they're bad, they're crazy to maintain that bond and sense of orderliness in the world. Because they don't know alternatives, are they? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, later on, you say, oh, other people do it differently. Mm. When you're three or four, you have no idea that there's other worlds besides that. And, but I think a very important element in recovery is. The sooner a kid gets to realize, oh shit, I chose the wrong parents. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's very, very haunting, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, you know, for a kid to, you're eight, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you say, my parents are crazy mm. and they go to weird things and I need to protect myself. That's a very hard, major issue to a conclusion to come to. Is it? I'm here by myself and I just need to keep myself under control while all this terrible stuff is going on around me. Like, what a challenge, you know? And indeed, it's about creativity. Yeah. A lot of people become very creative in solving it. Mm. They become creative by cutting themselves. Yeah. For example, which is one act of creativity because they discover that by cutting myself, I can feel calmer. I feel less scared. Yeah, And so people sometimes very, find very odd, outside odd ways of coping, but all of these coping things 
started off as a way of somehow desperately keeping it together. Mm -hmm. You know, when people talk about resilience, my reaction is always, everybody who's traumatized is resilient in their own way. Mm. Uh, Some of the adaptations are more acceptable socially or more productive financially than other adaptations are. But all these adaptations are creative adaptations in order to somehow survive what's going on. So some kids are able to get to that point where they're six or seven or eight or nine years old, and they look at the situation and they go, to use your words, holy shit, my parents are crazy, or whatever it is. This environment is crazy. The situation's crazy. Whoa, I just have to protect myself for a little while before I can get out of here one way or the other. But that's very real, I think. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's super real. And at the same time, some people never have that moment when they're nine and they don't have it when they're 18, and they finally have it in their mid-20s or their mid-30s or, or so on. And there's a storytelling aspect to that, right? You're changing the stories that you were telling yourself about the way things were often when you were young, like back then. And that can be, that's a creative process, but it's also an extremely difficult process for people because they can kind of feel like they were living a lie for a long time. I'm wondering if you've seen things support people through that process. The new story, to my mind, once people are in touch with what they have coped with, what it was like mm. for this kid back then. Sure, yeah. Once they IFS language unblend from the different parts. Yeah. So I have a very angry part. Mm. It doesn't mean that all of me is an angry person or that they really get to see how they have different internal aspects where they can sort of see who they are. And then a new language emerges. Mm. I would not mm-hmm. focus on mm-hmm. Let's change the narrative. The narrative automatically changes as you gather more knowledge of basically things that were unacceptable or yeah. un- intolerable before. Yeah, the way things truly were. So the big question in therapy is how do you help people to tolerate mm. feeling these feelings? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's where yoga comes in and body work and psychedelics and neurofeedback. Those are all ways of calming the system mm. down so people can allow themselves to know what they know and to feel the feelings that they have and to begin to reorganize themselves. And then the new language will emerge. You've been a real proponent of whole body approaches and forgive my terminology here. And and I I mean in a sense that goes beyond mindfulness of the body, but actually engages expression of the body as a creative imaginative act yeah. that's yeah. holistically integrative rather than fragmenting because obviously yeah. fragmentation is such a painful consequence of traumatic experience. So, And I, I just kind of wondered if you got any pushback against those approaches, especially when you were innovating them in the beginning and or what you've seen about these kind of whole body integrative approaches. People see, say all the time, oh God, he's really off, gone off the deep end now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've yeah. heard that for 40 years. Yeah. Oh my God, he's doing tapping. Oh my God, he really got off the deep end. Then we do research and we publish in a good journal and then people still don't believe it. Mm. <laughs> uh, oh mm. God, he's doing yoga now. Like, uh, being who I am and thinking how I do, I'm always surprised how quickly people come to a closure that what they do is the answer. Mm. But they obviously know that it isn't the answer. You know, mm-hmm. yoga isn't the answer. Yoga can sometimes be helpful. Mm-hmm. EMDR sometimes extremely helpful. Not the answer for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. like it's really about explain. And I'm always surprised how quickly 
therapists become religious about one particular method. Mm -hmm. I had a moment of truth like that very briefly in grad school, and I was learning all these different theories. And yeah. I basically asked the question kind of naively. I was like a little kid saying, does the emperor have all his clothes? What? And yeah. I said, basically, how do we know which one is most effective? Psychoanalysis, cognitive behavioral, Rogerian, family systems. And the person said, basically, oh, it's more like a matter of faith. You choose your faith and then you invest in it. And that's where you take your stand. <laughs> I thought to myself, there's something oh, really man. wrong here. <laughs> you know, hopefully, I know to be, be disparaging about it, but hopefully we have moved out of the jungle mm. into becoming somewhat scientifically oriented. And so mm. I think my, my unique contribution is that I can't think of too many other people in the field. I've always had a research lab and I've mm. always tried to study each method that I engage in. Yeah. Like one of my favorite methods is psychodrama, a particular form of psychodrama we should write about. I've never been able to get it together to have enough money or the protocol to study that. Mm. But if I could, I would. Yeah. And I'm very happy to be part of the psychedelic studies. So I'm not only a person says, wow, 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 psychedelics are great. No, what's great about it? What works yeah. it? For whom it does it work? For whom it doesn't work? And I'm always somewhat disappointed that most of my friends are mainly pushing their own methods and mm. not saying, well, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for others. Mm. Yeah. And that's the beginning of becoming an adult mm. is to know one size doesn't fit all. Well, I love that line for starters, Bessel. I think that's a fantastic line. And we had the pleasure of having uh, Stephen Hayes on the podcast and we talked about ACT. And one of the things that he mentioned was that he really dislikes rigid act people, as he described it, you know, in terms of like people who are rigidly yeah. committed to one way of doing it. He's like, no, I don't want anybody to be a rigid act person. It's a tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And it, you can use the tool if it works for people. And if it doesn't, you know, use a different tool. Yeah. And then so tied to that, there's been, as we've said a couple of times during the conversation already, a ton of research on psychedelics recently. We had uh, Albert Garcia Romeo from the Johns Hopkins lab on the podcast to talk about psychedelic assisted therapy for smoking cessation and addiction in particular, but it's been studied for a whole bunch of different things. And alongside all of that research, there's been a lot of like breathless kind of public conversation about the possibilities inherent in psychedelics. Do you think that there's an alignment between the hype that psychedelics are receiving and the actual like research findings right now? Or do you think that people are getting a little breathless about the whole thing? Like, what's your take? What I tell my colleagues and friends is that we are in this wonderful home, um, innocent phase of, of honeymoon. Yeah, for sure. We had the innocent phase when we first invented PTSD and everybody talked to everybody else who was doing things and nobody had the answer because there was no money yet. And as long as there's no financial reward, people can be honest. Yeah. At the moment, yeah. there's grants that play. And if you get your office in the basement or get five offices on the top floor of the building, money is always peace. Once money gets involved, which is about to happen in psychedelics, yeah. the place usually gets beaten up. And I'm not very optimistic about the future, actually, because mm. the research through maps that we're doing, yeah. we have had no side effects. Like Really? We, like, yeah, no, these are wow. powerful drugs. Yeah. People are very, very painful lives, horrible lives. And basically, people across the board have done extraordinarily well. People wow. who, when we, we enrolled them in the study, I often said, fasten your seatbelt, God help us. Like, and then people got better. 
Um, wow. But the study is so careful. Mm, People have samples mm-hmm. all times. They're videotapes. They get looked at. There's preparation. It is so so careful. Yeah. And I think the moment that we stop being careful, horses go to leave the barn, and there's going to be a lot of bad effects. Because mm, when you think so, psychedelic therapies. It's not like, oh my God, I see God. Some people do, but a lot of people see their trauma. And it can be very, very painful. I know that also from my own experience. This is not yeah. fun and games. And if you don't have the right set and setting mm. where people being contained and helped, this is going to cause a lot of bad stuff. Mm. And so Dublin and other people are really working very hard on how can we manage and control it, but it's going to be a major challenge. So is your concern, Doctor, just so that I, I really understand what you're saying here, that people are going to hear essentially, oh, this is a panacea, it's a miracle drug, and they're going to consume it in a setting where they shouldn't be without proper supervision, without really thinking about it ahead of time, getting good psychological support, and that's going to lead to some problems with people? Am I saying that back to you correctly? Yeah, there's one way of putting it. It's also, it's uh, no, uh, capitalism. Yeah. Uh, it's happening already. Yeah, For so- sure. <laughs> Quite a good psychedelic agent. Mm-hmm. Actually, I helped Phil Wolfson to run CAP trainings, Catamine Assisted Psychotherapy. Very exciting, very interesting. We do see some very painful experiences there, actually. But right now, you can actually go on the internet and buy 800 milligrams of ketamine without anything, without a prescription, and say, people just take it. That mm. is horrible. Mm. You know, don't blow your mind unless somebody's there to help you to put it together. That's so well said. And I just want to right here mention, people can go to your website, vesselvanderkoek.com. And among other wonderful features there, you have a collection of published papers that I've looked at, including, I believe, at least one that had to do with MDMA-assisted. Yeah, but the, the big paper, that, that is my paper, yeah. I have not sent off yet. I'm still, yeah, that's oh, great. Oh, cool, yeah. But at least we're moving in that right direction. So people should go to your website to take a look at resources there. The, the studies have been done up to now, many of them are sort of DSM-oriented. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you need that in order to get approved from the FDA. Yes. Yeah. But of course, the DSM is a completely non-scientific instrument. and. These are the diagnostic categories used in psychiatry and psychology these days. So people study those categories, yeah. but they're really non-existent categories. They don't tell us anything about it. Oh, let's get into that in a minute. I love this. All right. <laughs> and, so, and so then people say, oh, it works in the serotonin system. Now we understand it. No, nobody is studying mental processes. Right. Nobody studies what gives people a sense of self, what gives people a sense of understanding me and others. Those are not serotonin issues. These are very complex mental phenomena that you know, I've studied quite a lot of. I was sort of student of Piaget about mental processes that happen. Mm-hmm. And that whole, the mind has sort of disappeared out of our field. Do you really think that's true in the domain oh, yeah. of clinical psychology? Because there's a tremendous amount of research about mental states and traits, including sometimes their neural correlates, but very often, even without that, physicalized reference. There's some research being done in that direction. It doesn't get funded very well. Mm. And we have a lot of speculations about neural networks and mental processes, but they have in no way, shape or form been nailed down. Mm -hmm. And what people find is not, it's that particular chemical Mm -hmm. or that particular brain area. It's about the connection between all these systems. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the web telescope. You know, 
our mind is like, it is so complex with so many multiple layers. And so at this point, we're looking at the mind through Galileo's little telescope instead of through a web telescope. But people sure. pretend like it's a web telescope. No, it's a, <laughs> that's a lousy little thing. And there's almost nothing we can measure at this point. So I, I've got a question for you about this, Bessel, because like, do you think that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, people are going to look back on this moment in yeah. psychology, psychotherapy, mental health, choose your word, and just be like, these were people banging on drums, yeah. essentially compared to the tools that we'll have in the future? If we are around that long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ho hopefully. Okay, yeah, totally. Betting on the come here. <laughs> we'll take care of all these things. Right? Yeah. If we would continue, we'll be laughing our heads off. Mm. We'll be yeah. talking about the way we talk about bloodletting. Yeah, and leeches, and the whole thing. I went to the dentist yesterday, and he knows exactly what's going on with my teeth. Yeah. We have nothing remotely close to that. You know, yeah. the most yeah. sophisticated brain measurings would have one hundredth of a percent of what my dentist has about my teeth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, so we love technology and technology, you know, our brain scans have helped us to understand yeah. quite a few things. Yeah, we've come a far away. It's still that little Galileo telescope. It's yeah, a, for sure. Very, very dim view, you know? One thing that's interesting when I think about the field of trauma work is that there was a strong emphasis, Alan Shore's work maybe 20 years ago, that really focused on the physicalization, the traces of trauma yeah. in terms of lasting impact on neural structure and function, which fed into a narrative, I will use that word, of a kind of frozen stuckness for people. Oh, yeah. it's in me now, Ugh, I'm stuck. And your emphasis on the mind and creativity and imagination and so forth really pushes against that narrative that somehow it's hardwired and you're stuck with it. Mm. No, it's just hardwired. It's, uh, we need to respect that. Huh? Yeah. The degree, and we can see how hardwired it is because we see these brain abnormalities. Yeah. What we also see is that when people get better, the brain abnormalities don't necessarily accompany that. Exactly. There's some kind of network phenomenon that's beyond our measurement systems at this current time. So the brain is able to yeah. compensate to some degree about these mm -hmm. abnormalities that occur as a result from trauma, but we also are capable of, sort of rewiring brains in a way so that you still stay functional. And mm -hmm. so Marty Teicher's work, which is fascinating, has longitudinally looked at what happens to the brains of people who have been traumatized in different ways. And at the end, the people who have all right lives have the same brains, messed up brains, as the people who don't have no right life. But they have tiny little connectivity things that is so sophisticated at this point that I think only Marty's lab and two other labs can actually study this because it is such a subtle little connectivity issue. And fundamentally, it creates a kind of hopefulness that even mm -hmm. if certain structural issues remain, we can shift in our functionality neurologically and also we can shift in uh, forms of connectivity at network phenomena that are emergent properties of the nervous system and full of hope. But to my mind, it's even more important, there are things that we can measure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. how people process information. Mm -hmm. There's ways of, of looking, are kids quiet and able to concentrate or are they not? And so there's ways of measuring how people change. Mm -hmm. And I think we should, instead of relying on 
this fictitious uh, DSM diagnosis, we really should look at uh, mental functioning yes. and the capacity to make decisions, the capacity to organize your life. And they generally don't get studied much. I know. Mm. Sense of self, well-being. Yeah. yeah. Sense of you, how are you connected, how do you feel safe with you, mm. how do we stand up to you and still have a relationship with you. You know, those are pretty damn important things, you know? On the one hand, it is true. There's a tremendous amount of research in the psychological journals about the mind, thoughts, feelings, yeah. you know, different capabilities, the development, the cultivation of traits like mindfulness or self-compassion. On the one hand, on the other hand, my friends who are physicians and researchers definitely say exactly what you're saying, that the funding is so much greater for anything that seems hardware specific, as mm -hmm. it were. And that's that's a big issue these days. I did the first neuroimaging studies of PTSD. I still am involved in doing stuff like that. I yeah. love the neuroimaging, but boy, know your limitations. And also know that, that that's not really what at the end is going to determine what helps people. It's really mm. clinical work. So Bessel, just ask you a question about this. We recently did an episode focused on diagnosis, how the DSM works, how people get diagnosed for various ailments, all of that stuff. And as part of that, we gave a lot of caveats about the nature of these different labels, whether they are categories or labels there at all, or whether it's better to kind of just think about them as different sort of kind of tendencies that people have, and so on and so on. So we're pretty diagnostic light on the podcast in general. But I think that you used a phrase a second ago about the DSM, where something, to poorly paraphrase you, is something along the lines of these fictitious diagnostic categories. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, because most of the people who listen to this are not psychiatrists, but would you mind expanding on, on what you mean by that? Well, I, I was, by luck and by longevity, part of this process. Yeah. So yeah. I'm training at this Harvard Hospital many years ago, and people are beginning to find some drugs that seem to change depression. Around the same time, people are beginning to get, know something about brain chemistry, and we get the technology to look at brain chemistry. Hmm. And so we have two new technical things. And then we created DSM, and why did we create the It actually started off with research diagnostic criteria, so that if we study the effect of certain antidepressants, a laboratory in Los Angeles and in Boston and London all sort of measure the same thing. And so this, we started to do drug research at the time that we thought that drugs really would make a big difference. Hmm. And so now we have an agreement about what do we call for certain behaviors. So we cobbled together something with some, and we have no scientific data, but we have little committee meetings of people who treat these patients, and we sort of come to a consensus not on the basis of scientific stuff, but on sort of clinical immersion. But that looks like a category that more or less belongs together. Yeah. And so DSM comes out and mm -hmm. both pits survives in the preamble. This is just an attempt at categorization. It is too inaccurate to ever be used for insurance or forensic purposes. Mm -hmm. That paragraph disappears in subsequent editions. Mm -hmm. And now people believe <laughs> that these lists of symptoms actually are a disease. No, we created this very goodness of our intellect and our mind in order to see what drugs would work for what particular things. Now it turns out that these drugs are not particularly helpful, but it also turns out psychiatry has become a bunch of drug pushers who don't know anything about anything else anymore. And so psychiatry sort of committed suicide as a profession. 
Would you expand on that related to trauma? Do you think the categories in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, right, for people who don't know what that acronym means, you have reservations about those diagnostic criteria in the current DSM? Can I say it any more offensively than I already have? <laughs> yes, you could, actually. <laughs> you were unusually polite there. Considering <laughs> your willingness to just let it rip, so I kind of wonder. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is that I was on the committee, and I don't know how I got to not be in the last committee. <laughs> I think it had to do with the fact that I started to talk about attachments, and every time I talked about attachments in the committees, it was as if I had farted. Like, what the DSM thoroughly misses is, yeah that we are who we are because of who you are, the Ubuntu yeah, idea. The idea is that we're all interconnected human beings yeah. and you're not one little creature who has abnormal serotonin abnormalities mm. all by yourself. You know, we are interactive creatures. And so what we should be measuring is what is our interactive world like? Mm. Who am mm. I with you? How do I take you in? I mean, there are complex things to negotiate, having your needs and my needs met at the same time, and you need to be a fairly high-functioning person to be able to do that, unless you have a hierarchical attitude where what the boss tells you is always right and everybody else is always wrong, mm-hmm. and we go back to the old patriarchy. What we should be studying is how do we integrate with each other and how these different disorders that we have, how they affect interpersonal processes mm-hmm. and interpsychic processes. So this whole dimension of complexity is actually sort of missing mm-hmm. at this point. Hmm. We'll shake our heads if the cleanse survives 50 years from now, we'll go like, oh my God. I mean, talking about like a major moment of collective challenge and forming new relationships with people and the ways that that show up in practice in the world, we've all been a lot through quite a bit in the past couple of years with the pandemic and immense social division associated with that. And one of the things that you've said in the past is that sometimes with certain kinds of collective forms of trauma, they can be easier to weather in some ways because they happen in relationship. We're all going through the same thing. We all understand that it sucks. An example of this might be 9-11 in the United States. Like, oh my God, we all witnessed this thing. I'm not a fan of this collective trauma thing because 9-11 is very different from when you live in Kansas. Absolutely. You know, that's completely different from yeah. living underneath the World Trade Center and Absolutely. losing your, your spouse. You know, like, yeah. Same thing with the pandemic. Yeah, totally radically different experiences of it. If you're an immigrant living on nothing, yeah. 15 people in a room and people are dying, there's over a million kids who lost their caregivers during the pandemic. I, I, I don't want to say I'm on the same plane being inconvenienced by it. This is so good, Bessel. I am so happy you're bringing this. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more strongly here. I'm so glad you're saying this, Bessel, because I think that it's exactly how I feel about it personally. So just selfishly, and thank you for affirming that. I'm not saying anything that is like, oh God, that's like ESMC square. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't say it's like, yeah, duh, it's know? duh. It's, it's straightforward. <laughs> you know? I totally agree with you. And, and I guess that part of what I'm wondering here is that obviously a major feature of the pandemic has been people really arguing about whether or not we should be taking the pandemic seriously and essentially denying people's reality, denying the severity of their experience, which has been just enormously painful 
for so many people who have gone through yeah. incredibly challenging, incredibly painful experiences, of course. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you think that, that that aspect plays into this whole thing. I think the big issue is our politics is increasingly mirroring the dynamics of an abusive family. Mm-hmm. Where what you see is not true. We follow the meanest, nastiest person. We call other people enemies. If you spell the truth, you get bomb threats or people come to your house and do terrible things. And the truth can no longer be spoken. And I think that I ascribe the success of my book to the fact that our society is replicating an abusive family right now. Yeah. And that people are really trying to see some light because it resonates with so many people because they grew up like this. And my sense is also the mm. people who adopt these these lies and these alternative realities, the only way I can see how people do that is because they come from abuse. And so when the previous president threatens people and tells people to kill each other, they go like, oh, that's just like my dad. And my dad was a very powerful guy. I want to become just like him. You know, that's, so we are really reliving the abuse in our political systems. And is growth inequality in society bad for people? Duh. You need my advice on that? Like, I'm not an economist, but it is bad for people. But we don't do anything about it. We don't do anything that people cannot afford the medications, that people cannot get insulin, that people are can't go to a school, people cannot learn things, all that stuff. The, the social reality is staring you in the face, and people go, no, I'm not seeing it. Mm. One of the things that I've been engaged with is the formation, the beginning of formation of very, very large international coalitions of people organized initially around themes of compassion as a way at the heart of it all to acknowledge suffering and mobilize effective responses to suffering and its causes, its structural persistent causes. And one of the things that struck me a lot is that, um, I have some business background, is that people who are business people will compete fiercely at the street level but cooperate intensively at the political policy level. They will pool Mm. hundreds of millions, billions of dollars internationally a year toward maintaining profit and power. And yet it's the opposite for many, many pro-social organizations. They will be very friendly, casually, informally, but they almost never pool resources at scale that's large enough to actually make a significant difference over time in things, for example, like child poverty rates. And there's something we need to do, I feel, at scale for the people who have been disenfranchised, who uh, clearly want things to be better, to have vehicles to bring their power together, as it were, to come together for a better world. And on the other hand, it's hard to do that because people feel afraid to do that. Maybe if you use your model of the abusive family, it's scary for the kids to speak up about, let's say, the abusive dad. It's scary for the mom to speak up and challenge that abusive parent uh, or whatever the genders might be. And there's something inhibiting in us that I think it requires courage. From time to time, we get involved in sort of victim advocacy groups. You have groups for macular degeneration, you have groups for every obscure disease there is in the world, except there's no trauma coalition. And I foster these things from time to time. And what becomes obvious is that traumatized people have a hell of a time doing this sort of adjusting and flexibility and you get what you want this time, but next time I get it. 
the trauma lives on in them, and the trauma really makes it very hard for them to make compromises and to stay goal-directed. And there's also always a lot of hurt feelings because the trauma keeps us interfering with people effectively subsuming their ego or their needs or their, their systems under a larger thing because the trauma really interferes with that. Mm. It's a very huge issue, of course, because the number of people who could form an effective coalition is in the millions. <laughs> Billions worldwide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What I see as kind of like themes in this conversation that we've been having so far is that we have this rigidity on the one hand, this kind of frozenness, this stiffness, hierarchical structures, authoritarian structures also sometimes have this rigidity inside of them. And then on the other hand, we've got this flexibility, imaginative processes, ways of seeing the world in a new light. And as you were saying for a second there, Bessel, people who have been through very, very difficult experiences, as we've said over and over again, have a hard time moving into those more flexible, imaginative spaces for a whole bunch of different understandable reasons. They were unsafe, they were yeah. punished for them, whatever. What have you found tends to support people in like initially resourcing themselves to be able to engage some of those processes or take on some of those interventions? Well, I, I go back to this resiliency issue is that hmm. everybody finds ways of surviving. Yeah. And I started that. How have you managed with this? Then hmm. you come into another really interesting observation is that most of the great changes in the world for the better have been made by traumatized people. Mm. You know, when you read the biographies of uh, Isaac Newton, for example, oh my God, what horrendous childhood he had. So he escaped into mathematics. Oprah Winfrey, Nelson Mandela, Bishop Tutu, on and on and on. If you come from trauma, you also come from a position, hopefully, where you say, the world cannot continue to go on the way it is. Mm. And you know, if you come from a really enjoyable family, and maybe you guys, you hope to change the world, but you don't, if you come from a nice family, there's no urgency to change the world because you'll be okay anyway. Yeah, pressure isn't the same. Trauma is also a tremendous impetus mm. to change the world. Have, for example, after the Second World War in Europe, one damn world war after another, killing millions of people, they said, we need to have income equality. We need to have social security. And Europe totally changed as a result of the Second World War following Roosevelt's hope for America. Too bad Roosevelt died too young, so he never got to implement it in America, universal health care, universal education. Mm -hmm. But those ideals came as a result of the Second World War of people saying, man, we are just committing suicide. We cannot go on this way anymore. And of course, America right now, we are in some ways committing suicide. And I wonder whether when we go to wake up and say, guys, we are killing ourselves. Do you think that knowing that, just like knowing that story of the ways in which people are able to persevere and overcome and create powerful things out of those experiences, do you think that that helps them? Or do you think that more of like a felt experience is necessary? I think I see a lot of people, and I see it in my world also, who really use their own trauma hmm. to see, to become altruistic and yeah. to try to change school systems and mental health systems. But you need to be in touch with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as long as you say, oh, this person is just crazy, they're starving themselves, and they need to feed them, or this person is crazy, they mutilate themselves, and don't understand what this is for, then you will condemn people, and you will not open it up. But if you start celebrating, like, 
wow, you learned that starving yourself makes you feel calm. What else can we do so that you can actually keep your body alive and feel safe at the same time? But as long as you don't understand what this is about, people tend to be punitive. Mm. And our society is very complex. I see, mm. you know, we see amazing compassion side by side by amazing punitive systems. Our society is still flexible enough and hopeful enough that in the midst of all this stuff that's happening, there are thousands of people and organizations who are really doing amazing things. Yeah, the thing that has struck me in America, I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, I saw tremendous powerful social change, environmentalism, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, so forth. And then it kind of petered out or stalled out. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that the personal does not necessarily translate to the political. What I mean is we've also had, I think, yeah. a lot of development of psychological mindedness. There have been some excesses there, but when you name people like Oprah Winfrey and others, there really have been a lot of Jack Cornfield we talked about just before we started. There have been some good developments. And meanwhile, we've seen the rise of authoritarianism in America and a third of the country thinks that an authoritarian sociopath is a really good idea to put in charge. Yeah. What? And it just does seem to me to underline the point again, that to translate the personal to the political at scale, the scale we're talking about, we need to have these millions of individual, wonderful mm. organizations and people coalescing around some common cause and pooling their resources together in some meaningful way that's sustainable toward that common cause. To me, that's the, that's the X factor that's really necessary for major yeah. lasting change. Mm. Yeah, and for that, people need to be able to deal with their shame mm. and somehow be able to articulate their experience. Mm. But of course, the moment you say, I was abused as a child, that means this is the same as I'm a very damaged child and yeah. I come from a very mm -hmm. damaged place and I'm a very damaged person and I'm not as good as you are. And then you get to this deep issue of shame. And that's, I think, where therapy can be helpful. Instead of being ashamed about surviving, you can actually say, wow, that's pretty amazing that I survived this, actually. Yeah. 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 And that just feels like an amazing, a fantastic resource for people that they can lean on. I think that's the process of really, I think self-compassion yeah. is a critical, or at least a part of that really has your best interest in mind, that really looks after you. Yeah. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to just end our conversation today on. Bessel, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And I, I'm just really enjoyed where we went during this conversation. We talked about so much that I didn't expect to talk about, but it was just thoroughly fantastic to be with you. Keep up the good work. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we had an absolutely fascinating conversation with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He's the author of The Body Keeps the Score and a professor of psychiatry at the Boston University School of Medicine. Our plan for the conversation was to talk about the role that creative self-expression and imagination can play for people in helping them heal from traumatic experiences. Because as we talked about with Bessel, one of the major features of trauma is stuckness, where people get trapped in a moment that has passed. And in many ways, they continue to relive that moment throughout the course of their lives. And it becomes a kind of prison that really affects and dictates and influences so many other aspects of a person's life. 
So one of the most powerful tools is actually our imagination, the capacity to see things in a new light, to envision a new way of being for ourselves and maybe for the communities that we're a part of. And that was certainly an aspect of what we talked about today. But we talked about so much other stuff that I might have a hard time remembering all of it during this recap. We went from talking about the importance of that imaginative function to exploring what happens to a child during their development and the way in which they make sense of those experiences. And Rick had a great line about the fateful choice that a child makes when they are in a traumatic environment. They essentially have two options. They can either say, I'm wrong or the system is wrong. And again and again and again, what you see in trauma survivors is they often default to saying, I'm wrong, because that's actually the safer choice for the child. That choice is what keeps them in relationship with the people who provide for them, even if those people are themselves highly dysfunctional. And this is what leads to various forms of internalized abuse. Two really common forms of internalized abuse are that the person blames themselves for what happened. You'll see this in survivor groups with phrases like, well, I was a willful child, so that's why my family did what they did to me. Or alternatively, that the person just forgets entirely what happened to them. And we then talked for a little while about the DSM and the ways in which the DSM influences diagnosis and treatment. And Bessel gave like a pretty searing commentary on basically psychiatry in general. And a big part of that commentary, to I hope accurately paraphrase what he was saying, was how these categories that were created are not purely scientific in nature. They were developed largely by clinicians who were trying to pull from their own experience, working from clients and going, oh, okay, it feels like people sort into these different kinds of categories. And for those different kinds of categories, it feels like these sorts of treatments are often useful for people. But he gave a really interesting story about how at the origins of the DSM, there was a paragraph that said something to the effect of, hey, these are loose categories and we probably shouldn't be using this as a basis for insurance. And uh, it's a little messy to derive medication plans from these loose categories. Uh, but then that paragraph disappeared in future editions of the manual. And over time, the field has become more and more reliant on these different categorizations. And to be clear, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm going to offer any opinions here pretty diffidently. I am not sure what the exact timeline was for the creation of the DSM or the process that went into it. I just know what Bessel said during this conversation. And what I will say is that his overall view here is definitely consistent with mine. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I offer that opinion a little diffidently. But I do think that you just see in the formal Western mental healthy diagnostic world a real over-reliance on medication and the narrow categorization of people that often extracts them from their circumstances. And this is one of the things that we talked about during the episode on diagnosis, where in the DSM, there's a ton of what, but there is very little why and often not a lot of how either. So the diagnostic process silos people. It takes them out of their context. And one of the things that Bessel really emphasized throughout the conversation was the role of relationality, the ways in which our psychology bumps into the psychology of the people around us and creates these unique combinations. And that's what he believes should be our real focus of study and investigation. We also talked for a little while about the potential of psychedelic treatments of different kinds to help people who have gone through really 
traumatic experiences. And Bessel was pretty optimistic about this. He's currently involved with a study that has not been published as of the recording of this, but it might have been published by the time that this episode airs, where he said that some really fantastic results were found for people who participated in this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy research. And that's consistent with my understanding of the research that already is out there, that people have seen some really fantastic results. And at the same time, I asked him, hey, do you think that our actual level of scientific knowledge right now about psychedelics lines up with people's hype and hope for what these substances could do for them? And his response was that we're currently in the honeymoon phase with psychedelics, and he definitely has some real concerns that once they're extracted from these very careful study environments where this research takes place, and they enter the wild west of both the Western medical model of prescription and, and payment and funding and the money gets involved, as well as people just hearing these stories about the ways in which others have benefited from the use of psychedelics and go, oh, you know, I could just do this on my own time without any supervision. He's really concerned that we are going to bump into some problems. Then, really interesting part of the conversation, we talked about collective traumatic experiences. And I used the phrase collective trauma, which is a phrase that's just kind of in the space these days. I've got mixed feelings about it myself. And Bessel really pushed back on that phrase because his point was, I think, a really well-taken one, which is that we all have unique and different experiences. So even if we're kind of sort of going through the same thing, we're not actually going through the same thing. And there are actually ways in which the superficial similarity of our experiences can stop people from really getting the differences. So let's say you have two people who both went through the pandemic, right? And one of them had an experience kind of like mine. Sure, it was annoying, it was difficult, it was challenging, it was frustrating, it was exhausting. My life got a lot more complicated for a while. There were definitely some things that I had to deal with or learn to live with or learn how to overcome. Okay, sure, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I had an incredibly easy run of the pandemic relative to a lot of people. So, okay, you've got that one experience. And then you have somebody else's experience where they're 12 years old and their dad passed away from COVID. These experiences are not comparable. And the superficial similarity of them, oh, we both went through the pandemic together, can actually prevent people from really seeing the obvious gaping differences between the two of them. And so Bessel is a little leery about phrases like collective trauma that can sort of move people into a attachment to those superficial similarities while missing the vast and obvious differences that exist between two people's experience. To highlight a couple of specific interventions at the end here that Bessel alluded to, one of the things he brought up over and over again was the role that compassion plays, particularly self-compassion in this whole process. That internalized abuse feature of trauma is so salient, and you see it in just such a significant percentage of the people who have gone through incredibly difficult experiences. And often, a first step for people is really getting into touch with the ways in which they did go through something incredibly challenging. And they did persevere, and they were able to make it to where they are now. And that all alone is itself an enormous accomplishment. And the more that people become rested really authentically in having already been an achiever just by making it to where they are right now based on the circumstances that they came from, 
wow, that can be a really impactful first stone to move on the progression toward being able to exit those feelings of stuckness and trappedness because it puts people in contact with their own individual agency, with the ways in which they actually can make a difference in their lives. So again, our guest today was Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and his book is The Body Keeps the Score. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably already heard of it. If you somehow haven't heard of it yet, uh, I would strongly advise you give it a look, give it a read. I've linked to it in the description of today's episode. If you have made it this far, I would love it. If you subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review of the episode. Tell us what you liked about it. It really helps us out and it helps us reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. I'm pretty sure that the expanded notes that I put together for this episode are going to be a real doozy. That's going to take a lot of time, um, but I'm looking forward to really digging into it. You'll also have access to transcripts of the episodes and ad-free versions of everything that we create. So that's it for today. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.